Hey, this is Stuart Copen, and you are listening to your radio. It's tuned to follow your dreams with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. I am honored today to have as my guest Andy Summers, the amazing guitarist for The Police, one of the greatest bands of the rock era. Starting in 1978, they released only five albums, but they ruled the world. Their hits included Message in a Bottle, Don't Stand So Close to Me, and of course, Every Breath You Take. I previously interviewed on this podcast Stuart Copeland, the band's drummer, and his brother Miles Copeland, the manager of the band. So you can see I am working my way slowly through the entire band. In addition to being a brilliant guitarist, Andy has gone on to become an equally brilliant photographer, and he's just finishing a multimedia tour called The Cracked Lens and a Missing String. And in the middle of this podcast, as I do with all my musical guests, we're going to do a song fest. Ordinarily, I do one song fest, but in this instance, you're going to get a twofer. Andy recently named five albums that he said he can't live without, and we'll look at those and we'll play a little bit from some of those items. And then we're going to do a second song fest where I've asked Andy to select a handful of his best works. We've got them teed up. And this is all post-police work. And we'll play a little bit. We'll talk about them. And nobody else does this in podcasts. You also know that I feature a song of mine in every episode, underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make it relevant somehow. And in this instance, my featured song is called Stinger. It's from my album 20 that I released in 2015. It's a retrospective of the first 20 years of my career. It's a jazz reggae song that was inspired by, guess who? The Police, because of all their reggae stuff in their early years. So Andy Summers, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Good to be here dreaming with you. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Listen, I want to start off with a compliment because I was thinking before we started this interview, about how difficult it is to have a three-piece rock band that really works. Because with bass and drums, that's the rhythm section. You have to have that melody instrument that goes above it all and just makes it happen. And I could only come up with like three or four other bands that were able to do it at the level that you did it with the police. I'm talking about Cream and, of course, Jimi Hendrix. Mm-hmm. And I would even throw in you too, because the edge had that kind of, you know, melodic over skill of the whole band. And then it's you and the police. So to me, if it wasn't for Andy Summers, the police would have been a garage band. <laughs> well, I like, I like, I like the company. I think you, you, you've put a very nice group together there. Not one that would just spring into your head, but obviously you've given it some thought, you know, but yeah, cream Hendrix. 
yeah, I would also give it to you too because the Edge has a certain style that he brought to that band, and that's worked. Yeah, nice, nice group. I couldn't think of anybody else. Did anyone else come to your mind? So probably is. We'd have to start delving and really thinking and looking into the works. All right. So when I had Stewart on, he told me he says, you know, I had to convince this guy Andy Summers, who was a great first call session guy in in London, to join a fake punk band. So how did he get you to do that? Well, you know, it, it, no, Stuart didn't want me in the band. He was against it, actually. So I don't know what he was saying. Oh, see, he didn't say that to me. No, he, he didn't tell you the, the real truth. The real truth is they had a guitarist called Henry Bedavani. But uh, another guy got the three of us together. I was brought in, as it were, to uh, do a one-off project in Paris, and we were all very friendly. So I turned up to play with them. And, um, you know, anyway, the whole situation developed, and there was a thing happening, especially between me and Sting. And uh, that's when we all sort of instinctively felt, without not really articulating it, that I should probably be in the band. But I didn't want to join while they had this other guitar player. So the cruel thing in life is that they did get rid of the other guitar player, Henry, and I joined. So that's more, that's closer to the actual truth. So Henry was the Pete Best of the police. Is that what you're saying? Well, you could say that, I suppose, <laughs> or Henry. Oh, he was a good bloke, but um, he, he didn't have much in the way of guitar chops where someone like me it was a, a sort of different category. And Sting got really interested because suddenly we were able, able to step outside of the very heavy, prevailing punk ethos and come up with an original music that caught people's ears. Sting started to emerge, or, you know, he actually had this whole book for songs he'd written, but he didn't have anybody to play them with. And when I turned up, Suddenly, all this became possible. I was the catalyst, if you like. Well, I think you're right about that. Did he have actually the songs that became hits? They were already written, or are you talking about a different group? Well, he wrote, he wrote Rock Sound once we started, and we, we, you know, we were completely starving and on, you know, poverty-stricken guys. We had nothing, and we did this one-off weird trip to Paris, and that was where he wrote Rock Sound, and he came out with that as a bossa nova. But then as we started to get into playing together, he suddenly said, well, I've got this other one. It's called Can't Stand Losing You. I went, Jesus, that's pretty good. You know, and we started to play that. And then it sort of went on like that, that he had this sort of hidden cachet of, you know, songs or half songs that he'd written. And suddenly the band, you know, we sort of cohered, you know, the style sort of started to come to light. And, you know, because they were driven by good songs, but... um. We weren't playing them like the prevailing punk band thing. We, you know, I had a very different approach to the guitar. So, yeah. So let me understand this. Sting brings Roxanne to you guys. And it's, what'd you say, was a bossa nova? It was a bossa nova. And we went to Parrot. I mean, I'll tell you the actual specifics of the situation. We went and did this absolute abortion of a gig in Paris. In fact, we didn't even play. It was all like, we were just trying to hold ourselves together. But, we were young and we could do it. It was very bonding in a way. Um, but somewhere in there, he he wandered off on his own and he saw the, um, the you know the prostitutes in Paris up on Pigalle, and he got this idea for a song which was called Roxanne. And he was staying with me in my flat in Putney in London. I was there with my wife Kate, and he started suddenly coming out with this song. And I remember we went to bed one night and Kate said. 
hey, that's pretty good. That's really good, that song. And he was singing Roxanne in the other room. This was the first we heard of it. It was actually at my flat in, in Putney in London. But he was singing it as a bossa nova, you're saying? Yeah, it was kind of a bossa nova. He's playing an unanswering guitar. And so we bought it, you know, finally, you know, we were in some horrible, grotty place to rehearse, trying to get our stuff together. And I said, what about that Roxanne song? And he started playing it. He said, yeah, but we can't, you know, we can't do it as a bossa nova. And then Stuart had the idea of hitting the kick drum in a certain place. And I started to play the four in the bar rhythm part. And it, and it became the famous arrangement that, you know, finally took the world by storm. You know, it was a great song, and you know, now it has an incredible history. That song, so that's how it started, actually. You know, you do hear stories from time to time about how great songs started out as something completely different, you know, rhythmically or melodically, and they kind of morphed into just the right thing. And I, I mean, I can't even imagine Roxanne as a bossa nova. Oh no, it's a really nice bossa nova. It works. He he goes back and does it like that. Sting, you know. I mean, I think this is a a rule about songwriting and composing. You can create a piece of material. You should be able to play that same piece of material in many styles. It's like the test of a good song. I'm sure you know that. Well, you're right. Some songs do fit different styles. Yeah, you should be able to play it a lot of different ways. That shows the strength of the the original song. But I'm I'm thinking uh, there's a story with the Beatles where John Lennon wrote "Please Please Me" as kind of a Roy Orbison like love song. Yeah, he played it. You know, it's a slow thing, and he played it for George Martin and the band, and they couldn't stand it that way. And of course, they redid it, and that became a hit. Yeah, I don't think it would have made it as a Roy Orbison song. No, but it, it proves the point that these things come from somewhere. They're, they're not created in a vacuum. You know, as as musicians and guys who want to be good at music and all that, you listen to an incredible amount of stuff. And somehow, you know, later if you start writing music yourself, these things tend to surface. And often you start like sort of almost inadvertently writing someone else's song that's always been, already been written. And you someone else go, you know what you just wrote? That's a Buddy Holly song, you know, or whatever. You know, it's just it's par for the course. And so you, you know, you work your way through it, but it's it's all part of it. All right. So tell me about that sound that you developed for the band, because you had kind of that chorus, that flange kind of sound. It was so distinctive. Tell us how you kind of created that. Well, I mean, I didn't I didn't create the the chorus pedal, someone else invented that. But um, you know, I was in a tree. I mean, I think I had a basic thought that oh my god we're on stage for almost two hours that you know i need to vary the guitar sound throughout the show it was simple you know i just felt like i should do you know it shouldn't just be like bass treble and a little bit of fuzz box so i think when the chorus was invented or whatever by who and actually i don't know who invented it but it came from the roland corporation and we were starting to get very popular and of course they laid all this stuff on me they gave me all the the gear um, I mean, before chorus, I guess what we had on amps were vibrato, which you could have slower or faster. It was pretty um, caveman time, you know. Then the chorus was one of the early ones that suddenly you got this beautiful chorus sound, and it really worked behind a singer. You know, I thought it was very good behind the vocals. It was this shimmering sound. It was very attractive. I mean, it's become pretty much a staple for every guitarist. I mean, you have to have basically echo, chorus, 
and some sort of overdrive fuzzbox unit. That's basic, very basic for almost all modern electric guitarists. Then you can get more fiddly than that and start adding other things in. And there's a million varieties. There's a million guitar effects pedal makers in the US alone. You know? What I was really thinking about was that, again, as a three-piece group, you're the melodic part of that group. And you had to fill in a big space. And you're playing these gigantic stadiums and halls and the like and that sound that you developed that's what did it it covered that space that you needed to cover yeah well i yeah i, I you know i'm a pretty sophisticated musician i obviously realized what context i was in and the way i could get guitar to sound great behind the vocals so i, I played very different chord voicings than other guitar players who i wasn't doing the standard you know slamming heavy rock trip i mean we probably did something like that in there but i developed that sort of reverby chorus you know and more sophisticated chords particularly you know in the sense that i always played uh three parallel fifths instead of playing a standard bar chord with a third in it i eschewed the third we took that out which made the harmony more neutral and much cooler and hipper than you know making a standard you know one six four five chord progression so we made it a lot hipper and cooler which I think, you know, ultimately has given the the music of the police a, a much more lasting, you know, a longer lasting career because I didn't pin it down to this as a simple shit. You know, I was sophisticated. And so I came up with something in that context of the three of us. Sting had the musical ears to hear it and not argue with it. I'd play some weird shit behind him and he wouldn't go, <laughs> oh, you can't play that. He got it. He's a sophisticated guy, you know, he's a natural, sophisticated musician. And, uh, you know, so suddenly we were in this context, this space where I could play this stuff. You know, I played years of classical guitar, lots of jazz, blues. You know, I mean, I, I was sort of at that age where I just had it all together, you know, and um, suddenly I was in this raw trio. But it was the, the context that produced that for me. I mean, it was a jump for you, wasn't it? You were a first call session guy in, in London, weren't you? Well, Stuart might say that. I wasn't. I, I got some sessions. The session seat in London was brutal. No, I wasn't a first call session guy. Well, you should have been. Let me tell you that. Yeah, I well, don't. they all said that afterwards. Well, where did we get that guy? <laughs> no, I was on the scene and I was playing around, but I wasn't a first call guy at all. There were guys who devote their lives to that. I never really wanted to do it. I always thought sessions were kind of rubbish rubbish you sit there and play somebody else's music that was never me hi everybody this is robert miller your host i've just released a new ep called the singles project that features five of my new songs i'm pleased to say that the recording has gotten wonderful reviews it's been called amazing magical fabulously enticing a home run and a sonic toward the force how about that the songs speak to the ups and downs of life from the blissful joyous saturday morning to the darker commentary of like never before and the ship several reviewers said the songs show me exposed and vulnerable and you know what they're probably right See for yourself. The songs can be streamed on Spotify and all the other streaming services. 
And you can check out all of my music at the Project Grand Slam website. The links are all in the show notes. As always, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and to my music, and keep on rocking. All right, but you had a grounding in classical, you had a grounding in jazz, and this kind of good segue into the first of the song fest that we're talking about, because again, you named for you know a, a magazine, and they probably coerced you into doing it, but they said you got five albums that you can't live without, and I love the choices that you made because they really covered the whole waterfront. The first one was an album by Thelonious Monk, who I adore as well. about your feelings about Thelonious Monk? Well, when I was a kid, about 16, I actually went to London to, I think it was the Fairfax Hall in Croydon. Uh, they had jazz at the Philharmonic, you know, an American troupe of great musicians, all star musicians, traveling around the UK, and uh, Thelonious Monk was one of them. And that's the first I saw him live, you know, and I was happy. I think he came out and played solo piano. And of course, I mean, I was so young that uh, it was all news to me. And I had this guy came out and played the piano, playing all the wrong notes that sounded so thrilling and so right because it was Monk, you know, with these sort of asymmetrical rhythms and, you know, his choice of notes and the way he used space. It was sort of a revelation to me that, you know, you could play music that way. And so I became a kind of Monk lo lover, freak, you know, and, um, you know, I got some of the earliest albums, the one I, sort of remembering was Brilliant Corners. I remember the cover so well. Uh, and I got, of course, I got all of them later, and eventually I recorded a, a whole album of uh, Monk songs. There was a song on that album, and that's the one that you named for this uh, magazine. Yeah. There's one song on that album that I always loved. I played it throughout my uh, growing up years, and I'm talking about Bemsha Swing. Yeah. <laughs> And you're right, he had such an idiosyncratic style on the piano. Yeah. And it was just him. You, I mean, you you knew it was Monk whenever you heard anything by him, didn't you? Yeah, but, you know, what, we go, oh, Monk, he's so weird. Listen to the tunes. They're actually like little pop tunes. They're very cheerful and sweet. And they had lovely melodies, too. They've got great melodies. I play in my show... Now I play one, which is Round Midnight, which is a beautiful ballad with great chords, beautiful bridge. It's a, you know, he was an eccentric guy in his personal life, but the music was completely there. And I mean, he was recognized at this time. People said, oh, well, Monk, he's different, but he's a genius. And then you listen to the music, go, actually, they're very sort of bright, poppy tunes. 
But then he'd play like, da, 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 and then he'd just go, his solo would be, bam. You know, like that, all the space, you know, and that's the way it was, you know, and it was a great music lesson to hear somebody like that, you know, that, that sophisticated, that quirky, that sophisticated, and taking it out of just sort of um, standard bebop playing, you know, just roaring through the changes, which you, you have to learn how to do. But Monk went to another place. I totally agree with you. All right, second album was a guy by the name of Julian Bream. You named 20th Century Guitar. <laughs> thought about julian breed well I, I had this period when i was going to college in the u.s in los angeles and uh it was when i played classical guitar i suddenly thought oh i want to be a classical guitarist yeah my musical sophistication had grown to that point and i started playing classical guitar and studying practicing like a total maniac but the big influence at that period was julian breen with i can't remember all the pieces on it but they were yeah, what, what's the right word to use? They were sort of eminent or top of the line contemporary composers that I think Bream had gotten them all to write pieces for this album that he was making. He was the the eminent uh, classical guitarist of the time, you know, up there at the top with Segovia, better in my opinion. And so I listened to that album millions of times, you know, because it, so it was a real intake for me on um you know 20th century composing composition harmony and that you could do this on the guitar it was a very important album for me i still got it i still listen to it occasionally and you know you had the great benjamin Britten nocturne on it which i learned to play so i was playing all this stuff as well brilliant album yeah i agree with you all right third one this was interesting i didn't know this album before louise bonfa if I'm pronouncing it correctly, it was a Bossa Nova album. your feelings on that the first time i heard louis bonfa i would say is uh when i again i go back to when i was about 16 and i saw a film in my hometown called black orpheus this is a wonderful film made by a french director but it's the orpheus myth but it, and it's played out by all black people in uh rio de janeiro sort of the, the orpheus myth but he wrote a wonderful song for it called uh Mania de carnaval
I play it in my show, and it's, it's a great melody, you know, beautiful chords, great melodic line, and they use it as just a sort of theme song for the film. You know, I, I watched the film. I didn't even know where it was. It was some country. Of course, later I found out that it was Rio. But that was my first introduction, probably, to uh, Brazilian music. And, uh, you know, it stayed with me for the rest of my life. I'd spent half my life these days in Brazil. And I play that song in the show. I play it solo. Then I play it with some rhythm. I play solos on it. So it was a very important to me. And, of course, I've got the various albums. You know, Luis Bonfa was a great guitar player, you know, really good, very sophisticated and, and tight with his, you know, the bossa nova rhythms and the compositions that he played. I mean, superb guitar player and great composer that, you know, he was pretty successful in his time, you know, which was really in the 60s. I don't know when he died, but um, he was the great master, I think. Uh, I mean, there are other ones. Of course, you start getting the Brazilian music, we'll be here forever. You talk about Baden Powell, you know. Brazilian music really broke through in the United States, at least in the 60s, with um, that wonderful version of Girl from Ipanema with Stan Getz. It's a great form of music, and it stood the test of time. Yeah, well, that was yeah the late fifties, early sixties. Stan Getz and uh, oh god, the name of the girl's got in my head. Um, the singer, but they made many records. Astrid Gilberto. Yeah, Astrid Gilberto, and they recorded. They did live concerts. Uh, I think there's an album with Louis Bonfa. Uh, the various things. Yeah, Stan Getz really sort of went for it because it brought him to fame. And he was a fantastic saxophone player. But there was a big movement. I mean, it's not quite like that now. Gradually, Bossa Nova lasted for about four or five years as the th main thing. And then it just got sort of absorbed into the mainstream. Right. And it's just part of Brazilian music now because they eventually they went on to rock music, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, it's it's still there. And I, I've enjoyed being there and playing it so many times. Yeah. You know? Well, initially it was almost like a pop hit, and that's you're right. It took yeah. Stan Getz's career into a whole different place. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's go to the next one. This was interesting to me because you you picked a Wes Montgomery album, and of course he was one of the great guitarists of all time. thought about Wes Montgomery? Well, obviously, he was a fantastic guitar player, fantastic soloist. I mean, just tremendous, you know, and um, we were all sort of going along. I suppose people who are aficionados of jazz guitar, who are almost all American. And then this guy, Wes Montgomery, burst into the scene out of nowhere. No one had heard of him, but um, he made it so apparent on that 
incredible jazz guitar record that everybody wanted to play like Wes. And of course, the thing was he played with his thumb and he was sort of an uneducated guy with an incredible ear and an amazing technique and ability to solo, a kind of a genius player. And so we all set to work learning how to play Wes Montgomery stuff. I remember, you know, I did learn the whole solo on, on um, West Coast Blues. By the time I was about 16, I could pretty much play the whole solo, which was a great lesson for me and a great way to improve one's you know, guitar technique to, to play those phrases and all the way he would phrase over minor seventh chords, all this. Yeah, I, I started to really get it. So Wes was very important. And, of course, the record itself stands the test of time. It's still great. All his records were great because he was an incredible player. You, there's no bad Wes Montgomery record. They're all absolutely at the top. And another one with a very distinctive style, just like Monk. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. All right. Last one here. This was interesting because it's kind of outside the framework of the others. You picked a Yo-Yo Ma album, Bach Cello Suites. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, you know, they could argue about that if that's the best one or not. You know, obviously the cello suites, I mean, are just immortal. Some of the greatest pieces of music ever written. And, you know, I basically listened to them all my life. I know them all. I've tried playing some of them on the guitar. I've probably dabbled in them. Some of them I got better at, and, you know, but it it's wonderful to, uh, you know, immerse yourself in that music and be, if you like, as a musician, you know, and living your musical life and practicing your instrument, to be immersed in the mind of a genius like Bach and to play through these things and to understand them, whether you play them particularly well or not, or you intend to go on and do it as a, in a concert, that's another story. But just to to be around it, to to get the atmosphere and play through those movements and uh, harmonic progressions of someone like Bach, it's, it's just a great thing to do. Very good. And Yo-Yo Ma is the top of the line for sure. He plays every summer at a place that is near me called Tanglewood in Massachusetts. Yeah, I know. Yeah, he's just a remarkable uh, musician. Yeah, wonderful. Okay, let's go to the second song fest because this is going to be you and your songs. And the first one that I got playing behind us is your version of Roxanne, the instrumental version. I get it from yeah. <laughs> it's on the internet i hate to tell you if you didn't want it to be jesus did somebody take that off out of one of the shows i don't think so wow. i think it's right out there go to youtube you're all over it yeah 
Tell us about that. I'm not one of those guys, but who, you know, everyone's on YouTube and all the other rubbish. I don't do very much of it, actually. Well, whether you want it or not, it's out there. Okay. Okay. But I thought it was a really special, interesting version of Roxanne, totally instrumental. Well, yeah, I feel obliged if people come to see me and they're going to get something of that, you know, and that's the way I did it. I've been doing it anyway. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, you got to look it up. It's out there. All right. Second one, Metal Dog from 2015. Tell us about that. That was totally different. Yeah, well, that was um, the album that I made at that time. Is that you know, obviously I make records, and that was is that 2015 now already? I think so. Wow, I thought it was 2017, but well, that was just the record I made it. I like the title "Metal Dog," and it's an instrumental piece. It's the second piece I play in the show because it's you know a little bit more of a rocker and it's pretty quirky and it sort of gets people moving pretty pretty early on. So we. I like to play it to uh, stir things up, if you like. Well, it is quirky, and it does stir things up, so I agree with you on that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right, next one. Bring on the night, featuring 40 Fingers. about that one. Oh yeah well yeah i did this with a group called 40 fingers um they are an italian guitar quartet and i met with them actually and uh, we played together once and we were thinking about doing a whole thing but it, it didn't really pan out they have their career they, they just played in the u.s they play steel string guitars not nylon strings like a classical guitar quartet and they really play pop music and they rearrange it to their own thing. They're very good. They're all very good players and they arrange things in an interesting way for them to make it work as a guitar quartet. And they did just tour in the US. But we had one night um, in Hamburg where we all played together and we had a great time. And so in my live show, I, I play this with their backtrack. My guitar is obviously live, you know. So what we had done was remove my guitar and I just played to their um, backing track. Well, it's a very interesting way of taking that song. Okay, last one, another police song that you did solo, and I'm talking about your version of Message in a Bottle. Thank you. 
Well, yeah, I feel sort of duty bound to play Message in the Bottle because it's one of the greats. Um, I am playing the melody, you know, uh, on the guitar, not so no vocal. I, I play it and I try to make it very loose so there's not a square version because I mean, it's a pop tune. So you don't want to play it just like the pop song. You've right. got to like kind of be a little bit looser with it, with the phrasing. So I'm very aware of that. And, uh, you know, as it's gone on, I've sort of, I mean, how many ways can I sort of like mess around with this, but keep it recognizable? But you know, just so that playing is nice and loose when I'm there in the moment on under the spotlight, as it were. So everybody knows what it is because it's got a very famous guitar riff, but I'm playing that melody over the top and then I solo all the way through it and all the rest of it. No, it's a very interesting way of making that song. Do you find there's a lot of pressure on you when you're out there to play police and, you know, make it as recognizable to people as possible? So in 10, you know, I mean, I suppose I could say, well, I'm just going to play all the police. And, you know, I, I have another band called Call the Police, which is based out of Brazil. And that is all police. And I don't mind doing it because, A, it's extremely well received and we sell out everywhere we go. The singer is great and the drummer is great. They're great, great players. So it's a very good band. And there's no uh, shame and no embarrassment. We, you know, the band rocks and it goes really well. So I, I feel like uh, it's my legacy. I own it just like the other two own it too. Now tell me about that band. Do, do they play, is it Portuguese versions of the police or is it? No, no, it's all English. Okay. We have a fantastic singer, bass player called Rodrigo Santos. He was in a band called uh, Red Baron, Baron Romejo. And uh, he was just, yeah, I don't think he was the lead singer. They had another lead singer who was very popular, but Rodrigo's got a great voice. He sings really well, and he sings these songs very well, and he's a killer on bass. And then the drummer, Juan Baroni, is from a group called the Paralamas, who are like the number one band in South America. So it's an all-star band, and the show is all hits. And they're played faithfully, or do you do them with a, a different kind of flavor? No, we do them as like the classical things. But the thing I like about it is, is with this band in particular, it's looser than the police it we go up we go for it a bit more we jam more you know like rodrigo comes over and sits on the floor and is playing with me he gets much more into it so in a lot of ways it's more fun because it's the same material basically but there's you know guitar solos are way longer and you know there's more jamming and so it's it, you know we try to get into the heat of it every night and um you know everybody's really happy it's it's a great show Sounds good to me. When's the last time you played with the original Police? Well, that would have been the reunion tour, which was 06, no, 07 and 08. And how was it when you got back together again like that? I mean, a lot of time had passed between the original and that. Oh, I can give you a lot of fun now. Incredibly tense. Really? Why was that? Tell me why it was incredibly tense. Well, I don't think Sting wanted to do it, but they, he did it. You know, he was very upset at the beginning, and then he kind of got over it. And then... We got the whole show together. We started in Vancouver. We were put in, Van in a studio in Vancouver for three weeks to bring it all together. We could have done it in three days, actually. And um, I don't know. we got to it, and we, you know, I mean, it's not something we didn't know how to do. It, it just, you know, but did it all come back immediately? Is that what you were saying a moment ago when you said you could have done it in three days instead of three weeks? 
yeah, it's not like, oh, can you remember? It wasn't like a situation like, can you remember the course? Of course I can bloody remember the course. <laughs> what about play this in my sleep, man? Come off it. No, it was just like, I think we had to come together kind of, we are doing this. We are back together. You can't get out of it because it's all put. You know, if we'd gotten three days into it and said, I'm not doing it, too late. Live Nation had booked the whole world and we off we, we had to go. You make it seem like Sting, at least, was put into this kicking and screaming. Is that what happened? I don't think, no, I don't think he was a very happy camper at the beginning. Uh, you know, I'm not going to like start dissing Sting because, you know, without him, we couldn't do it. But, you know, there was, you know, it's like any band. Of course, we start playing them and rehearse. And gradually, after a little while, you start getting better and it starts to sound really good. Then it gets looser and you're, you're looser with the material. You know the stuff. It's it's like a normal band. It's our music and we, we knew how to play it. But still, you sometimes, some days you play it better than other days, depending on, you know, how much you slept the night before, whatever's going on in your life. <laughs> I thought Vancouver was sort of boring. It took three weeks, three weeks of rehearsal, which is ridiculous, you know. And then we did the first show as a tryout. We had 19,000 people. But the biggest thrill to me was uh, we turned up at the, the the hall to play, and we had our little dressing rooms. And um, there was a, a room with food, and everything was very nice. And um, the most exciting thing for me is I walked into this the, the the food room, you know, where they had this nice dinner laid out. And there was a girl in there. And I said, oh, wow, is it fantastic? It's a girl. And I start looking at her and go, I know her. I know her. And I went, oh my God, it's Penelope Cruz. <laughs> it was Penelope. So I said, oh, hello, it's nice to see you here. <laughs> so we had this little moment. Just me and her, and of course, she's absolutely beautiful. And she was very sweet, very nice. By this like thrilling moment of being left alone with Penelope Cruz in the uh, in the lunchroom, and um, she gets to the side of the stage and watch the whole thing. There you go. The benefits of being a rock star, huh? Well, yeah, it was fun. It was fun. I was, oh my god, it's the Penelope Cruz. <laughs> and we met her again, and she we were in Madrid, and it was like a hundred thousand or whatever. It was a gigantic show. And, she was there, but um, with what's his name, Javier, you know, they'd gone together as a couple. So I was thwarted. <laughs> well, it must have been something else to be back together and to be going through that whole thing again. We have been speaking here with Andy Summers, the amazing guitarist for the police, and you've done so much more both before and after. Andy, it's been such a pleasure to have you on this podcast. Yes, I'm talking to you, mate. All right. Thank you so much. We're going to listen now to that song that started off the episode. It's my song called Stinger. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com.
Thank you.